Hello, I'm Mary Portis, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow, people, planet, and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? Pandemic aside, there's been a lot to get people talking this year. From the new space race to the COP26, the government sleaze, does it ever stop? There's been much to unpick and react to. And much of this talking is done in private, you know, across kitchen tables, on the street, in offices or on Zoom calls. We're constantly and collectively sifting through and reacting to events around us. As businesses, we can find out what people are saying by tapping into the more public conversation on social media and opinion polls and the press. And while Boris might be sticking his big fat blonde head in the sand, Bezos and Branson jetting off into space, lots of bees there, I can think of another one, the collective mood is being revealed all around us. Well, here at Portus, we call these threads of collective conversation cultural frequencies. They show us the path into tomorrow, the values and emotions that are driving fundamental change. As businesses, it's our job to listen to them. We need to understand what's making people dream and also what's switching them off. Now, I've been in business practically 40 years and the one thing I can tell you is that experience, feeling, gives you context. You've been there, you've done it, in many different ways. And I've often been told that the cultural noise won't change big business. Well, what I know from experience, however, is that the large businesses that think they're impervious to it are often the most vulnerable. Kneecapped from behind by a newer company that delivers on the same needs, but better, because they've tapped into the overall cultural frequency, the mood. We cannot be complacent when it comes to the cultural noise and vibrations that say so much about how people want to live. Today, the cultural mood is pragmatic, grounded and experience-led. We're yearning for a different kind of hope, one that provides an antidote to the anxious uncertainty we're battling in the here and now. Innovation, betterment, progress, This is what so many people want in so many ways all around us. They're telling us this. They're yearning for it. Now, this isn't about being a brand on high, dictating from the top down what you believe people should want. This has got to be felt, felt from the ground up by people and people first. Here at Portus, we call it PX, people's experience of a brand. It's about tapping into what people want, their emotional as well as their physical needs and the things they're dreaming about. And they're probably the same as what you dream about. Here's the thing. It's time to listen, connect and learn from the bigger picture. I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy is supported by Dell Technologies because... We know when you start your business journey, you're not so much focused on the challenges you're going to face or the pivots you'll inevitably have to make along the way. You're focused on your customers, the people you set out to help. And Dell Technologies know that too, which is why they stop at nothing to find the right tech solutions for you. Do more with your devices. Call your Dell Technologies advisor today on 0800 085 4878. 
That's 0800 085 4878. Okay, here's the show. My guest today works in an area that's close to my heart, British fashion. In 2005, Patrick Grant bought the Savile Row tailor Norton & Sons and four years later, he relaunched the heritage men's ready-to-wear brand E. Touts & Sons. He went on to become menswear designer of the year at the British Fashion Awards. But he didn't stop there. In 2015, Patrick bought Blackburn clothing manufacturer Cookson & Clegg, saving it from closure before launching the social enterprise Community Clothing, which works with factories in some of the UK's most deprived areas. It's important work. Over the past 50 years, employment in the textile sector has dropped from around 1.6 million to just 50,000. In some towns, textile jobs accounted for almost 50% of all employment. Today, in the former textile heartlands of Lancashire and Yorkshire, almost one in four people of working age are not in employment. In addition to all this, Patrick has helped to inspire thousands to reconnect with the increasingly lost art of making and repairing clothes. Through his work as a judge on the BBC's The Great British Sewing Bee and as the driving force behind the big community sew which saw thousands volunteer to make Covid masks. There's so much in here that I care deeply about, which is why I'm delighted to be speaking to Patrick today. I was brought up in Edinburgh by Scottish parents who valued things. My mother still values everything she owns. My grandmother was the same. You know, I was brought up in the sort of household where mould was scraped off cheese and nothing was, you know, no food was wasted. We kept things a long time. We fixed things. And, you know, we did all the things that actually today are the things that we all ought to be doing. And, and I was just brought up that way. And I went to school in Edinburgh. I was the kid that had the really old rugby shorts and the really old socks and everything looked like it had been handed down 15 times. And in the photos of, you know, the school rugby team, my shorts look almost white. They're so faded from blue. And, and that, was, that was very much part of the way I grew up. I grew up buying secondhand clothes a lot. I was into fashion, but I couldn't afford new clothes. So I would save to buy one or two expensive, nice things every year. But mostly I would shop in charity shops and secondhand shops. Actually, I came from a working class family and the scraping the cheese used to happen in mine as well. And the make, do and mend and absolutely that. And I suppose, you know, talking to you, the biggest thing that I'm always up against um, is how do we make secondhand hand-me-downs, make, do and mend, the new, new? To be honest, it feels like it's happening a little anyway. I think the number of young people who claim to be avoiding all consumption for a year or only shopping secondhand for a year, young people are aware that the clothing choices they make have a very significant effect on the planet. I think it's very difficult for a young person to resist the call of a lot of that uh, fashion imagery that is everywhere on their phones. Um, But I do feel like there is just a growing awareness that we have to change things. And I think even to the extent where young people are now questioning whether 
consumption of all kinds is is a, a sensible policy. I know. I think, I think you're right. I think we've come hugely. I suppose it's just when I read that you know the stats on, on who's making the most money, we still got well. I mean, you, and, well, you, you know. read Shein with its 15 billion turnover, Shein. and you know yeah, right. you gasp. <laughs> But it also, it did, well, I mean, it, it, it's difficult because I'm nearly 50 and it's hard to put myself back into, you know, my 15 or 20 year old self. But it wouldn't shoes. have been the same then, though, would well, it? Well, it wasn't. But, you know, we still liked fashion. I mean, I, I mean, when I was a teenager, there weren't even any men's fashion magazines. I mean, it was mm. that was sort of before GQ started. Mm. Um and it is difficult to imagine how it feels. You know, I was a young kid that liked to be well-dressed and I did everything I could to make myself as well-dressed as I could. I just didn't have the money. If there had been fast fashion, I reckon I'd have gone for it. Um, but I do think I do think there is a, a, a clear shift. You know, I think there is a small group of people at one end of the spectrum who understand the damage that fashion causes and have decided to make changes. I think there is a growing number of people in a second group who understand the damage and haven't quite made that shift. And then there's a much larger group of people who aren't really aware yet for one reason or another. But I think the general shift is towards, is, is in one direction. It is, it is growing awareness and growing willingness to make substantial changes to the way they live. Yeah, look, there's undoubtedly we are making progress. And I'm always one that tries to highlight that because I think there's an awful lot of despair that goes into our physical bodies, actually, emotionally. You know, we're looking at COP26, what's happened post-COVID. I say post-COVID because I'm just going to keep saying that. But, you know, so so I think there's, I have every hope. I just, we need to speed it up. Yeah, and uh, and it, it's interesting to hear your take on that. I also like... In 2005, you bought this Savile Row Taylor Norton and Sons, and you were mm. only 33. Mm. You sold your house to do it. That's ridiculously brave. What what made you take that kind of risk? Uh, it didn't feel like a risk, funnily enough. I mean, it, it, uh, various people have asked me that question. My granny thought I was bananas. Actually, my mum thought I was more bananas. I had just completed a master's degree and most of the people that did that degree with me went off to work at hedge funds and private equity What was your houses. master's in? I did an MBA. Yeah. Uh, and I chose to buy an old tailor's that was knackered. I mean, it was losing a lot of money and it needed a lot of care and attention. But at its heart, it was a lovely little thing. And when I found out that it was for sale, which I did by complete accident... I firstly couldn't believe that a, a, a genuine 200-year-old almost Savile Row Taylor's was up for sale. But when I looked into it, it was real. And I'd all, it was all the things I kind of loved in life. It was beautiful men's clothes. It was handcraft. And it was an ancient, beautiful brand. And, and you also said it was probably the most sustainable brand that you could think of. In what way? Talk to me about why well, that would have been. Savile Row tailors only make the clothes that people want. So there is nothing that is made that isn't immediately put to use. Uh, we make using the best natural materials on earth. We make our clothes in such a way that they can be let out and taken in. And we do that frequently for customers. Uh, our clothes can be repaired and we offer a repair service, which we do frequently on clothes. And we make clothes that not only 
do people want to keep for ages because they're very invested in them? They are expensive. But also we make clothes that last for ages because they, they're not at one end of that fashion pendulum or the other. They sit in a nice, simple position in the middle that, that never feels highly fashionable, but never ever feels unfashionable, just feels like stylish men's clothes. And our customers do keep these clothes for a very long time. It's quite normal that jackets will last 25 to 50 years. Sometimes they last much longer. Um, and I think when you think about the impact that the clothes we make have on the planet, it's very small to begin with. And then when you take into account the fact that people will wear them a thousand times, two thousand times, you know, the, the footprint of that clothing is minuscule. I was thinking just sitting here looking at talking to you about this because I'm finding myself, you know, even this morning, you know, picking stuff out of my wardrobe, stuff that I've had a long time. You know, I've got in my wardrobe a Jill Sander suit and I've got an old Prada one. We should start a campaign of how women can get great suits made that will last 50 years. Well, we all do it. Yeah. (laughs) We just, I just don't think we're very good at advertising the fact that we do it. Uh, I mean, we probably make 5% of what we do for women. Yeah. But... It sits in a funny place because we are expensive compared to Jill Sander and Celine and Prada and so on. But we're very cheap compared to Chanel. <laughs> and, you know, we, if you go to Chanel for a bespoke suit, it'll cost you 20, 25,000 quid. We're a fifth of that. And I think, I think we, have a, we are perfectly capable of doing it. We do it very well. I mean, we make um, and we've worked with lots of young London designers and we have female customers from all over the world. But I don't know. We're there. We're available. Let's get on to manufacturing and get on to um, your social enterprise, because this is something that's very close to my heart. You know, I think it was you got an email from Cookson and Clegg, who were your one of your key suppliers in 2015, saying it was about to close. So you bought it. I love these. Yeah. Oh, so I bought it. I'm not even going to ask you where your funds come from or selling or whatever. But talk to me about factories and really what we've seen I, I gave the stats before you came in which and I remember doing my kinky knicker show and, and reopening a factory up in Manchester but you know that we know in some towns textile jobs accounted for about 50% of all employment and mm. today that's something like one in four people in the areas where you have your factory are now working age and not in employment yeah. so I would love to know, is it credible that we can bring manufacturing back to this country um, locally? Yes. Yes. Okay. I will give a full answer when you've... Well, no, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that's yeah, number no. one. And then I want you to yeah. t- talk to me about how and why, how you did the Cookson and Clegg and, and, and your thoughts on manufacturing and how you've made it work. I did a TED talk about this about five years ago, four years ago, three years ago. I can't remember when it was. Um you're right. The loss of textile jobs in the North particularly had a really devastating effect on those communities. So in Lancashire and Yorkshire and the East Midlands and the South of Scotland, a very large percentage of the population were employed in textiles. Actually, at one point in our further history, more than 25% of the entire British economy was textiles. Um, but... 50-odd years ago, there were about 1.6 million people employed in textile and garment making. Today, that number is well under 100,000. So we've lost at least a million and a half 
jobs that I would say are very good jobs. Can you give me a little bit of background for anybody who doesn't know on historically why that happened? We went through a period of consolidation in our industry. So back in the 1880s, 80% of all of the owners of the textile mills in Lancashire were born in Lancashire. The people who owned textile businesses and clothing businesses, like most businesses in the UK, lived and and worked in the communities in which their factories it's were based. A little local ecosystem. They were, they were they were in many cases very paternal towards the communities in which they sat. Their kids went to school with the people that worked in their factories. They spent their money locally surplus profits were recirculated into the local economy because that's where they lived. So they built schools and they built parks and they paid for town halls and actually was creating a, a good standard of living. Now, there were lots of problems in that, that era. I mean, it was the beginning of kind of polluting industry and also it was a time when child labor exploitation of workers was rife. But, you know, we, we as consumers were appalled by all of this and we we forced through changes in labour laws that meant that in the UK you couldn't exploit people in the same way. And then what happened in the really in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, uh, we had a couple of things happening. Firstly, we had the, the arrival of synthetic fibres, which allowed clothes to be made more cheaply, but they needed to be done at quite a big scale. And what happened was you had a consolidation. So from local capitalism, you move to a system of global capitalism and the small local mill owners disappeared. So all of those businesses were bought and consolidated into very large businesses, which were originally in the UK, but then very quickly, the shareholders of those businesses realized that actually you could make a lot more money if you moved all of that production somewhere else. And when you have owners of businesses who have absolutely no stake in the communities in which those businesses sit, they don't care about shutting factories down and taking away those jobs and moving them somewhere else. So that was what happened. And it happened very, very rapidly. And it had a very devastating effect on communities like Blackburn, where my business is based. When you started looking at your your community clothing and the factory that you, you bought into, what was, your, um, what was your goal? Was your goal to say, I want to make business that can create profit here or was your goal and I'm putting the words into your mouth to say I want to create a thriving business here that creates jobs social progress all the things that you talk about because often the people I'm talking to are making the biggest difference in the kindness economy are the ones who don't put profit first yes yes well I mean it is and has profit come though profit has not come yet but profit I think sometimes people confuse the idea that a business needs to make a profit with the idea that the business is a greedy business. I mean, all businesses to remain functional have to make at least some profit. Enshrined in our articles of association at Community Clothing is the statement that at least half of any profit we make will be pushed back into achieving our social purpose. Now, our social purpose is to create good, sustainable jobs and to create pathways to good, sustainable jobs in the communities in which we work. At the moment, we work with 31 factories in the UK. They are mostly clustered in Lancashire, Yorkshire, the East Midlands and the South of Scotland. What we want to do is to see all of those factories that we work with thrive to create new jobs, 
with fantastic employment standards and to work with the communities in which they sit to encourage other people to learn to um, or to want to go into careers within that uh, within textiles and garment making. And that's enshrined in our articles. It is fundamentally a principle of our business that we are there to create economic prosperity in the communities that we work in, because by doing that, we will make people's lives better. So this is community uh, clothing, clothing, which you launched. What year did you launch? Twenty sixteen, and it's a really sort of it's like a manufacturer's cooperative, but yeah, it's this it wonderful is. symbiotic relationship between the whole thing. It's the it's we talk about this ecosystem, and that's what you are creating again. One of the things that I found um, when I wanted to do um, open reopen a factory, God, this was I don't know how many years ago, and I did kinky knickers. But what I found most difficult, and I don't know whether you did, was actually getting the trained seamstresses and the equipment, because so much of the equipment, like the machines were sent to China and they sold them off. Did you find that? Was it really difficult? We find lots of, well, there are lots of challenges. I mean, I think the most fundamental challenge is that systematically over the last probably 30 years, we have at the top level of government, and it's been both Labour and Tory, undervalued manufacturing jobs in this mm. country in most sectors. I think the current government claims to be interested in manufacturing, but only in manufacturing of what they believe to be whizzy future looking products. So they're happy to you know, manufacture aerospace products to manufacture solar panels to manufacture things that they feel are future looking. They have absolutely no interest, it feels, in supporting very advanced manufacturing businesses who are making everyday products. I think there is this odd disconnection in their brains between advanced manufacturing and manufacturing advanced products. We, we know that we've, we've been through the technological revolution and we're still going through it, of course. You know, before that, the industrial revolution, before that, the agricultural revolution. But actually, what's going to get us out of this? And I remember you, you talking about is that you believe that, you know, this creativity, this use of hands and the fashion production is going to be vital to help us actually build back post-COVID, right? Yeah. Well, I think we have to separate two different distinct streams of creativity. There is creativity within manufacturing which is a kind of engineering creativity. It is about problem solving. It's about understanding how we do things and finding ways to do things in a, in a better, more efficient, more planet-friendly way. Um, that's the kind of creativity we have in our business. It's not about sketching new dresses or coming up with ideas for creative marketing campaigns. It's about that sort of engineering mentality where I see something and I can visualize a better way of doing it. That's the kind of creativity we need. But we also have jobs for people who just want to make something every day, who are very happy every day to be doing the pockets and the collars or doing, yeah, you know. Yeah, what was so it you have? I was reading that you've got Caroline. I was looking on your, uh, on your website and you've got a profile of a woman called Caroline and that she does these, is it hand linking of the, the socks? Linking of the socks, yeah. So, so talk we, to <laughs> we, um, we, it's an incredibly it's skilled really gorgeous, job. It's lovely. It um, yeah. It's, uh, so we make our, we have two sock makers that we work with now. One called JLX Swift who are in, uh, in Haven in Leicestershire and that's where Caroline works and she hand links the toes. There are two ways of attaching the toe to the body of a sock. You can either lay the two together and machine it flat, which gives you a, a not very robust and quite chunky seam, which is not very comfortable to wear. Or you can very carefully 
put every loop of the knit of the sock on a little ring and then individually link in each loop of the toe section of a sock. Now, it requires fantastic eyesight and great skill, but it gives you a product that lasts a lot longer and is more comfortable to wear. That's the way we do our socks. You're also doing this great British sewing bee because there's, there's two key areas I, when I think of you. Obviously, you know, your design, your manufacturing, creating your brands which are sustainable um, and bringing community and uh, really together. And I love the name community clothing. I was rather jealous. I wish I'd come up with that. It's fantastic. And the other part of it is actually, you know, inspiring people to make, do, and mend. You know, mm. truly. Talk to me about um, how you're passionate about yeah. the joy and craft of using our hands that can bring it because so many of these do tie together in everything that we should be looking at more and more and more to create, you know, well, a better planet and a better way of living and less consumerism. Um, There's a really lovely moment. I was watching a a series that um, Sarah Cox did about schools through the ages. I don't know if you caught it. It was on the BBC last year, I think, maybe earlier this year. And it's a group of school kids from inner city Birmingham, I think, from memory. And they take them back and they, they put them through school at different eras of the past. And there's this one bit, and I think, guess it must have been in the Victorian era, where the girls are separated from the boys and the girls do sewing. And of course, they're like, I'm not doing any yeah. sewing. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, they're sewing. all on their phones. There's, you know, there's all the stereotype nonsense that you would imagine from a group of young kids. Uh, but of course, they have to sit and do this sewing. And I think they, I, I can't remember what they did. They may have been embroidering and they've got, I think they might have had embroidery hoops. And yeah. they, so cut to two hours later, <laughs> there is this beautiful calm that has descended upon this group of young kids from, from Birmingham. And they're all in this sort of meditative state. Yes. They've all been sewing by hand and they've just, they've loved it. And they talk about how, just how they feel better because they've been switched off from their, you know, from everything, all the outside inputs have disappeared and they've just had a moment of kind of mindful, meditative craft and it just made them feel better. And I think that is something that is really important because we all need ways to switch off. But also the act of sewing, you know, you are putting love into it. Mm. You know, you are putting human energy and human skill into it. I darn bits and pieces of my clothes. I like mending my clothes. I hate throwing things away. And I think it is an essential part of how we are going to deal with the environmental catastrophe that is modern fashion. We have to repair. We have to also learn to remake everything. You, a, a, a woman's cotton dress, when it was worn out, would have been disassembled. The textiles would have been salvaged and a, a girl's dress would have been made. And then from that, a child's dress would have been made. And from that, a toddler's dress would have been made. At every stage, everybody had the skill to do that salvaging. So, that you know, the... The, the environmental impact of the production of that original dress and that piece of textile gets divided and divided and divided and divided to the point where it has negligible input. And this is something that we all need to get back to doing as a matter of absolute routine. We have to value every piece of clothing. The clothes we make have to be made from textiles that are actually worth re 
using in that it's way. It's funny you said that. I was doing a, a talk um, last week. It's exactly, they have to be worth. So first of all, and there was these little repair shops that have been cropping up and uh, there's a, a local vicar who just, I, I love this guy called the Reverend Green. He's a vicar and he said, the problem that they've got in electrics and stuff like that, which is what you're talking about here as well, bear with me, is that stuff comes in and it's just not worth repairing because it's not of a good calibre that we had yeah. X amount of years ago and then you've got the likes of the apples of the world who you just can't repair their stuff and of course they want to they profit from the repair market and keeping all that within their corporation yeah. interestingly actually they did announce yesterday that they were I going heard that. to yeah. make it but I think that they've been forced into I that think they have, absolutely. We'll, but, we'll teach you to put a new screen yeah, yeah, on yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, about yeah, three yeah. things yeah but I think it's it is it is fundamentally the case that most of the stuff we buy today is really, really bad quality yeah. compared to the same, in inverted commas, same thing from 20 or 30 years ago. And in, in, to the extent that almost everything, I was in a rented flat in Leeds for a couple of months while we were filming Sewing Bee. We had to do it in a, in a COVID bubble. Um, the plug sockets on the wall was so bad that you couldn't really put a plug into them. Whoever had manufactured them, they looked like a socket, but they didn't really function as a socket. However they were made was such a bad way that they didn't really do their job anymore. And I think the same is the case with almost everything we buy inexpensively now. What started out as a good thing, somebody somewhere made a facsimile of that in a slightly cheaper way. And then somebody else said, well, we need to shave some money off that. And some other factory somewhere else said, well, we can make that. We can make it for 5% less. And so another facsimile is made. And you get facsimiles of facsimiles of facsimiles to the point where the object is no longer in any way related to the thing that it is supposed to be. We just are being sold rubbish. What you're talking about here is uh, at the heart of everything is quality, a respect, an understanding of how things are made, an, an ability to repair and use these skills. And I'm here as I even say this, my hands keep doing that, yeah. because this is what we're actually coming down to, isn't it? How we can bring this back. And I think in a way, more than anything, it is something that we as a country should be deeply proud of if we can make this happen. Because I remember so vividly um, when... Uh, hearing one of the ambassadors from China give a talk before I, uh, when I was doing a keynote. And the goal in China was to actually set, make the label made in China stand for something rather than just crap. And we should be looking at made in Great Britain with absolute respect that we can do this. And this is what we should be buying into. And this isn't in any way being a Brexit insula. This yeah. is actually understanding what good and value is, what good value is, because that's what we're coming to yeah. here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a story that um, Terry Pratchett wrote this little bit about boots. And the I can't remember the exact words, but in summary, you know, it said that a poor man can only afford a £10 boot. In time, he has to buy 10 boots for 100 quid. And each one of those boots is terrible quality. And so he, you know, whereas a rich person can afford the 50 pound boot and that boot will last, you know, twice as long. So the poor man ends up spending twice as much money and his feet are always wet. 
And this is the kind of fundamental principle here. We have to break ourselves of the idea of price and start to try and understand in some way the kind of lifetime value of it. But well, it's difficult that, when you've got no money. Well, that, So here's the answer. I'm coming up and sitting here with my marketer's head on. Is there a way that people can pay it on a monthly basis? My mother used to have little green shield yeah. stamps. You yeah. know, she'd yeah, collect the stamps them, yeah. in a little book and mm. then think, five kids, I can't go out and buy that. Or the little catalogue where you paid your monthly we should be looking at that. Well, I think we, we can, there, are, there are solutions, but again, you have to break people of the mindset that says, well, actually, I can still go to X and buy a T-shirt for four exactly. quid. which is where I started quid, this discussion. Where, so it's like, well, I that's... know I can buy a really good one for 20 quid that's going to last me for 10 years. It'll, you know, I can wear it 200 times. There has to be quite a big shift in people's mindsets but it's i think the thing that might just tip that is the fact that that good thing is the thing that is going to save the planet from burning it's the only thing that's going to tip it yeah. so it's where we started when i asked you that on you know what do we do about yeah. the fast fashion thing so it's that it's it's total education but it's also with my marketeer's head on is selling a new way of living that people see as good for them and good for the planet. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that's where the challenge is. Patrick, I think you and I could talk forever because you've done so much and I think it's an incredible. And I'm glad that you're in the world, mate, and doing what you're doing. Just, just from your heart, talk to me on where you hope we will be in, well, in making things better. We, we ran this fantastic project this year called uh, Homegrown Homespun. So this was community clothing with an organization called Fibershed and the British Textile Biennial. And we grew our own cloth in Blackburn. We planted a field of flax. It grew without any pesticides, without any fertilizer, without any irrigation. The rain fell quite naturally in Lancashire, which it's like, it likes to do. And we grew our own dye crops. So we grew woad and indigo and we produced a beautiful linen denim cloth. It was hand spun, hand woven. It was a zero energy product. In fact, it was arguably negative in CO2 because the crop will have sequestered carbon. We believe, we haven't got the results yet, regenerative for the soil. And it was all produced locally. And the product, because linen is a much more durable fiber than, than cotton, will last a lot, lot longer. And the process of doing that will employ people locally who will feel connected to nature. There is hope that we can build systems for all of the things that we buy that are not just negative or offset, because I don't believe offsetting is the answer. We have to think of systems that are completely clean. Every piece of material that we extract from the earth needs to be valued. And I think connecting people with the systems by introducing them to how they're made and what they come from is a really key part of how we get people to change their minds. And I think that is an important lesson for everybody. And I think it's a blueprint for how we can do things much better. Patrick Grant, thank you for joining me. Thank you. What I loved about Patrick is a real understanding of not just how we can bring manufacturing back to this country and make a difference, not just on how we can make and mend and create products and clothes and fabrics that have sustainability and longevity at the heart, but above all, how 
if we do bring back businesses like manufacturing, we can create these ecosystems where businesses become living institutions of social progress in society, more than just taking, giving as well as making money. That's all for me from this series. We're going to be back in a month or so. For now, be kind and I'll see you soon.